I think the biggest challenge that I faces a lot of vets in practices is understanding the risks, communicating those and understanding why they're recommending the prophylactic regime that they are on a monthly basis and really getting to grips with that and then communicating that to owners. That's a challenge. You know, that takes time and that takes also some time to understand it, which hopefully this podcast will help everybody with. But just understanding the difficulty that we have with this parasite to avoid exposure and also the difficulty to understand what's happening within your local area. Welcome to the Vet Times podcast, a concise weekly topical clinical podcast from the people behind Veterinary Times. This podcast is sponsored by Zoetis, makers of Symparica Trio. Symparica Trio is a convenient monthly tablet containing oral moxidectin and is licensed for the treatment of flea and tick infestations, prevention of angiostrongolosis and treatment of gastrointestinal roundworm and hookworm infections. For more information on Symparica Trio, speak to your Zoetis account manager or visit www.zoetis.co.uk slash Symparica-Trio. Joining me today on the Vet Times Extra podcast are Eric Morgan and Jenny Helm, and we're going to be talking about lungworm and the various sort of challenges and options for vets in practice. So welcome both of you. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Fine, thanks. Good to speak to you. And you. Thank you so much for joining us. So, lungworm, how much of a problem has Angiostrongolus fasorum been, and what has been the traditional geographical distribution? So we've known this parasite has been present in the UK for at least the last 40 or 50 years, but for a long time it was really concentrated in just a few places, particularly in southwest Wales and also in Cornwall. And then really in the 90s we started to see more of it in the southeast of England, and since then it has been expanding in distribution. So we've been seeing increasing incidents here in the UK. How long has that been an issue and what factors would lead to it getting worse? Well, angiostrongus has been spreading uh, probably since the 90s, generally from south to north. And so we've had cases in Scotland um, more than 10 years ago, but it seems to be doing this uh, in quite a patchy way. So we've also had areas that have had very little angiostrongus for quite a long time. And then angiostrongus arrived quite recently, actually. So this applies to places like Bristol, some parts of the Midlands. And this is the sort of spread we would expect because dogs are moving around the country and maybe seeding new areas with infection and then it's getting into the fox population. It's very difficult to assess uh, spread through dog cases alone because, of course, veterinary clinical awareness and the lack of reporting systems makes it difficult to track that. So what we've done is look in foxes, which are perhaps more of an honest indicator. And there we've seen an increase in overall prevalence in foxes We've seen a spread northwards. We've seen this infilling of of the the patchy areas that I've described. And we've seen, even in areas that have had angiostrongus for a number of years, roughly a doubling of prevalence. So in the southeast of England, for example, from 23% of foxes infected now to to more than half of foxes infected. And that is probably related to uh, effects of climate on slug and sail intermediate hosts, increased ability for overwintering, and possibly other factors such as urbanisation of foxes, although, of course, that is not a new phenomenon. And has it, um, forgive my ignorance on this, but has it always been here or is it something that's sort of been introduced? It's been known in the UK for, for some decades and it was reported in dogs back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, there are various theories about how it got in. It's been known in Ireland for longer. It's been known in France for longer. So presumably it came in with a dog at some stage. We don't know exactly how or exactly when. 
but now it's firmly established and very much cycling in the, in the fox population, regardless of what we do in dogs. And in terms of the clinical signs that vets would see, what should they look for? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So the primary clinical signs, the most common clinical signs tend to be respiratory in nature. So coughs or dyspnea, as you would expect with a lungworm. But what I find interesting about lungworm, and I think what a lot of specialist clinicians find interesting about lungworm um, and Andrew Strongbus Vesorum in particular, and not other lungworms, is its ability to cause coagulopathies. So some of these dogs will present with bleeding disorders. And there's been a lot of research over the last few years into the pathophysiology and, and how the parasite exactly does that. And I would say at the moment, probably we believe it causes a problem with tertiary hemostasis, so the actual um, clot breakdown and um, at the end, but there's been several um, mechanisms that it that underlie that have been postulated in the past. And I, I expect that it's probably um, a combination of different effects on, on blood clotting. But um, certainly if you have a patient bleeding, and that may include um, bleeding from the gums, petechiae, um, we've had a scleral hemorrhage in a patient we've seen, we will see bleeding post-surgery um, or oozing post-surgery can be one of the presenting signs. Um, so um, bleeding disorders is, is uniquely um, linked to um, Androstrongus vasorum over the other lungworms that we would see in this country. As well as that, we will see other um, rarer but varied um, clinical signs. So we will occasionally see neurological signs. We will see sometimes ocular signs, either due to hemorrhage or due to aberrant larval migraines. So um, there's also been dermatological signs reported as well. So um, lots and lots of clinical signs and of course, vague, vague clinical signs too. Um, things like lethargy, um, poor exercise tolerance, these, these type of things. So um, yes, certainly respiratory signs, but a, a whole host of other clinical signs that can be attributable to lungworm. Have you seen any interesting cases of this in the past? What key things could you outline for us? I suppose for me, the key things I would outline would be the wide and varied presentation that I've seen. Um, I um, have been involved in specialist um, hospitals for a number of years and um, my colleagues know that I've got an interest, so they do tend to come and find me if there's a case in the hospital. So um, recently... Um, in the hospital I worked in, we saw a dog with a very marked hypercalcemia, which is it has been reported in the past, but this dog had a particularly elevated um, calcium, which was interesting. We've had a dog with dermatological signs. Um, I had a patient myself recently with um, both neoplasia of the lung and also androstrongus vasorum, which was a tricky one to work out the diagnostic imaging on that one. So I've seen many a varied um, presentation, but then again, I'm in specialist practice. So when I talk to vets that are in first opinion practice, they tend to be seeing more of the classical cases, so the respiratory cases and perhaps those cases that have bleeding disorders. So um, I do. I will admit that I've certainly seen interesting cases over the time I've been um, working in referral hospitals, but I have to be aware that I'm seeing a select proportion of, of patients. But um, yeah, certainly, um, certainly a diverse clinical presentation with this disease and, and also diverse um, sort of signalment of these patients as well. So traditionally, we believe that androstrongus vasorum is higher risk in, in young animals, but certainly in areas where I've seen it emerge, like Glasgow, where I work, we have been seeing older patients with disease. So that's been interesting to me as well, looking at the patterns of presentation as the disease appears to emerge in an area. So what are the key challenges for veterinary practices and for owners in preventing lungworm disease in the first place? I think a major challenge is it's really difficult to avoid contact between dogs and the slug and snail intermediate hosts. 
So it's true probably that relatively few dogs would intentionally go out and eat slugs and snails, but there are lots of opportunities for accidental ingestion. The smallest dogs in particular, for example, if the dog has an opportunity to scavenge or even to chew grass, they might accidentally ingest these slugs. And we know that in hotspot areas, you could have a, a one in five chance that those slugs are infected. There's also recent evidence showing that while larvae don't really leave on slime trails and slug feces so much, if the slugs die in water, then the larvae can be released, the infective larvae can be released into the water and live for quite a long time. So even drinking out of puddles could be a risk factor. So it's very difficult to see how owners can manage that exposure and make sure, however careful they are, that in an endemic area they don't contact infection. And I think from my point of view, hearing Eric say that as a clinician brings in the biggest challenge, which is understanding that as a vet and then communicating that to owners and understanding what we're trying to achieve with our prophylactic regimes. Because, of course, we, we don't prevent exposure with the medications that we're using on a monthly basis. We're trying to prevent um, clinical disease um, expressing itself. And I think I've really realised, and I guess lots of people in practice um, know this is how busy it's been over the past year or so and how difficult it is to have long um, conversations with owners about these risk factors. And as, as Eric says, we can't mitigate many of these risk factors as well, simply because of the way the parasite um, works and the way we've got this established wildlife reservoir. So, um, I think the biggest challenge that that I face is a lot of vets and practices is understanding the risks, communicating those and understanding why they're recommending the prophylactic regime that they are um, on, on a monthly basis and really getting to grips with that and then communicating that to owners. That That's a challenge, you know, that takes time and um, and that takes also some time to understand it, which hopefully this podcast will will help everybody with. But just understanding the, the difficulty that we have with this parasite to it to avoid exposure and also the difficulty to understand what's happening within your local area. And that's an area that Eric and I've talked about in the past, how useful it can be to um, to keep testing these um, cases that, that you might see that would be coughing or um, would have bleeding disorders to make sure that you can build up some evidence where you're working so that you know that um, the disease situation um, that's, that's underlying the pets that, that you're seeing. And also understanding that exposure also appears to be sometimes quite patchy when the disease emerges as well. So um, understanding even if you haven't seen a case that you're, the dogs that you're managing still could be very much at risk of lungworms. So um, I think there's several challenges there and I'm not sure I've got all the answers, but hopefully having this information at fingertips will help. You mentioned there in terms of the prevention side of it, prophylaxis has been sort of the way that people have gone the prophylactic approach there's a lot of debate about that what are your views on that in terms of whether this is still the right way to go well I'm happy to say that my views are I tend to be very very open-minded I I know that there are obviously concerns that we will chat about in a second about whether resistance could be an issue to this parasite and also um, whether the products we're using have an environmental impact and that's very important to me as well I don't want people listening to think that we're not considering that in giving this information and I think that's where there's this unique challenge with androstrongulus lungworm is because we can't eradicate the the risk to these dogs otherwise and I thought long and hard of this about this over the years um, and I, I still believe that prophylaxis is incredibly important in in protecting dogs against lungworm but I will let Eric um, also contribute to that as well because Eric's excellent at understanding the epidemiological um, background to this. 
I think we should probably mention another parasite here, and that's Toxicara canis, which is a significant public health threat. And even though the motivation of the owner might be in particular cases to protect their pet clinically from angiostrongolus, they're also doing a very good thing by regular worming in terms of reducing the risk of Toxicara infections in people. So we have to bear that in mind as well. Sure. So we touched a bit on prevention, but in terms of the actual treatment, what are the main options? Yeah, so regarding treatment, I guess it's first and foremost important to say that you would need to support patients that are suffering from lungworm, particularly if they are um, suffering from severe disease, which is very possible. So any dog with severe respiratory signs may require oxygen supplementation, may require um, fluids. We, I've talked in the past about whether broad-spectrum antibiosis is, is indicated, and there are certainly some dogs that will have bacterial um, pneumonia as well as lungworm, but it's not usually um, needed as a, as a routine treatment for patients with lungworm. So each case is going to have clinical judgment on a case-by-case basis about the supportive treatment that's required. Dogs with bleeding disorders may require blood transfusions. Um, lately, we've had some publications to support the use of tranexamic acid in these dogs, showing improved outcomes. So there's certainly lots in the literature about supportive medications. Specifically for treating the parasite itself, it's my understanding that there are two licensed drugs in the UK, um, moxidectin containing spotons, and then also milbomycin products. Problem with milbomycin products is my understanding is they need to be administered every week for four weeks for treatment. And a lot of the products we have available to us are combination products. So it's not safe for us to give them on a weekly basis. So it really leaves us treatment-wise with using um, moxidectin containing spoton. Um, and I think that's appropriate. And the studies support that that's highly effective. Um, occasionally needs to be followed up with treatment again, um, 28 days after the initial treatment. And anyway, that would be um, appropriate for ongoing prophylaxis as well. Um, lots and lots of vets still do use fenbendazole because before... Um, other um, anthelmintics were licensed. It was the treatment of choice. It is efficacious, but it's not licensed. So if we're going to go by the veterinary cascade, then um, we should use a licensed product first of all. And the evidence suggests that they are very effective. So that would be my, my take on treatment. Great stuff. Um, you touched on it a bit briefly earlier in terms of the anthelmintic resistance. I mean, are there concerns regarding this? And what can vet professionals be aware of in this regard? I think whenever we use chemical dewormers against parasites, we should consider antimintic resistance. However, I don't think it's as much a risk for angiostrongolus phosorum as some other parasites, particularly in large animal practice. This is because you tend to get uh, resistance when you have strong selection pressure, that is treating a, a whole bunch of animals with the same product repeatedly, and there's no escape for the parasite. I think this is perhaps not as big a risk for angiostrongus because we have transmission among foxes. And so you have an inbuilt refugia, if you like, of unexposed parasites that are, that are there and spilling over into dogs. It's true you might have dog-to-dog transmission as well, of course. However, if you were to apply refugia-based approaches, what you have to do is ensure that some animals are infected and continue to generate larvae in their feces, but without succumbing to disease. I think that's highly problematic for angiostrongus because we don't know what the threshold exposure that is safe is. We don't know if there is such a safe threshold. Can we encourage continued patent infections without a risk of that dog becoming sick? We don't know that that's true. It's also the case that those larvae will be spread into the general environment, infecting slugs and says they're putting other dogs at risk. So it's very difficult to defend uh, 
refugia-based approach where we don't have this known safe limit, we have such a potentially severe clinical disease, and when all along we've got a refugia in a, a coexisting wildlife population. So uh, I think re resistance should always be a concern when we use wormers. I think in this case, there's, there's not really any indications to move away from good protective regimes against angiostrongus on that basis. And this is an area where we've seen quite a lot of research and guidance and product innovation. I think there's been lots of research on angiostrongus around the epidemiology, the life cycle. We know more now about the effects of climate on uh, the host range, which is very broad among slugs and snails, uh, increasing host range in definitive hosts as well, including some uh, unusual species like meerkats and red pandas and uh, mustelids. And also cats can be infected, but not support a, a patent infection. So we have lots of research that's really picking up from where earlier researchers left off back in the 1950s. We really had to play catch up with angiostrongus in terms of understanding the basic biology. And that's been very exciting for research, but it also means there are things coming out all the time that might change our understanding of uh, risk factors for dogs uh, and so on. In terms of product innovation, I'll hand over to Jenny, but I think it's true that it's very difficult now to um, have a worming product for dogs that, that doesn't cover angiostrongus simply because it is so widespread and it is uh, so dangerous in a minority of dogs. And so that has led to some innovation in the sense that uh, our worming regimes uh, and products uh, four dogs have had to catch up with the parasite also. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, that's where there's been innovation, I guess, over the last few years, making making our job delivering CPD harder. I certainly know when we both set out um, doing roadshows about this, there only was one licensed prophylactic in the beginning, and now there's a whole host. So there's been innovation in in um, anthelmintics preventing lungworm that also prevent a whole host of other parasites. And I think it's the way that... Um, that parasite prevention has gone is towards these um, products which will cover a whole host of different endo and ectoparasites. So there's certainly been innovation there. Um, clinically, there's lots of interest around the bleeding disorders for sure. Um, how it does that, I guess that there would potentially be therapeutic indications if we could work out which element of the parasite was able to cause these coagulopathies, then there's potentially a um, therapeutic indication for new development of products similar to warfarin or um, other um, blood thinners. So there's there's interest in all areas of angiostrongus, very interesting parasite, but certainly for vets in practice, I know that there's a whole host of um, broad spectrum anthelmintics out there now that there just weren't, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So it's, it's getting everyone's head around those that is certainly um, exciting, but also difficult sometimes with the market being ever-changing. Is this an area where owner compliance is particularly vital? And do you have any advice for colleagues in this regard? Yeah, I truly believe that owner compliance is vital because um, we have to follow the licensing time intervals for these anthelmintics for lungworm and they do need to be applied every month to be concordant with the prepatent period for lungworm to ensure that we don't have clinical disease um, 
in these dogs. So it's really, really important that the owners are aware of that. There's certainly cases that I've seen where the owners have come in and they've said, um, but my dog won't have lungworm. I use a product that prevents lungworm. And then when we've questioned further, they haven't used the product for six months or so. So there's certainly um, an owner um, education aspect there to make sure that they are using them to the licensed time intervals and also setting up um, ways that owners can manage that certainly so that maybe um, sort of um, healthy pet clubs or plans so that they can understand why they're doing things at, at certain time intervals and that they get reminders. Um, I've said many a time about everybody having busy lives and it's easy for time to fly without you realising it. So, um, I think that the importance of owners being reminded and understanding why they're doing this as an education there on, on behalf of the practices. And we were just talking um, before the recording about, I believe that the average number of antiparasites that owners use per year is around about three. So they're worming three times a year. We were saying how that's an average. So certainly some owners will be doing it monthly, but other owners not at all. So there's work to be done by the profession to ensure that people are educated and that they're making appropriate choices. And if they're using the products to prevent lungworm, they're using them at appropriate time intervals. Okay. And in terms of the resources that are out there for vets to use to get over valuable messages, I mean, what kind of resources are we talking about? I can certainly, Eric will probably also add to this as well. My my favourite resources are actually with SCAP. I think you've got a really balanced view there um, and there's some great resources that have always been updated um, and always looking at a really um, scientific evidence-based approach. So, um, there are numerous resources for owners. I would say that all the major pharmaceutical companies provide owner-directed material and vet-directed material as well. So, there's resource there as well, but SCAP's a wonderful um, place to look on the website and to get information. And I understand that they also run a helpline as well, which can be invaluable to get advice on individual cases. I'll let Eric elaborate well, on I'll that. Well, I'll second that on resources. Certainly ASCAP has great resources. There's a vet section and then there's a client section. And we we talked earlier, Jenny mentioned the difficulties in getting messages across and having the time to do that in consult. So using these materials and resources to try to engage with a pet owner outside the consult as well is really important. I think... If you're recommending a, a, a worming regime to people and uh, they don't really know why they're doing it, we shouldn't be surprised when compliance fades because if you miss one dose, you're probably not going to see the toxicara worms that appear, probably not going to see a clinical uh, breakdown with angiostrongolus right away. You're putting your dog at risk, but you might not see a negative effect. So if you're only doing it because you've been told it's the right thing to do, uh, it's very easy to slip off that compliance. So it's very important to remind uh, dog owners why they're doing this and and the positive benefits they're achieving by doing it rather than the, the just obligation to follow a recommendation. Brilliant. Well, great stuff, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Some really, really valuable information there about Longworm. Um, and we've covered a lot of uh, different ground there. But thank you so much for joining us, Jenny and Eric. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Paul. You're very welcome. Bye. That's it for Vet Times podcast this time. Thanks to our guest. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. But for now, thanks for listening. See you next time.